sunflowerofpeace.com. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club of California. Our topic, Caring for Aging Parents, Challenges, Choices, and Lessons Learned. Today's program is hosted by Grown Ups. It's one of the member-led forums here at the Commonwealth Club. And the program is also part of the Good Lit series, and it's underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. I'm Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor uh, of Government and Politics at KQED. I'm your moderator for today's conversation. And this program is going to last about an hour. Uh, and toward the end of the program, we'll have time for questions. And for those of you who are watching online, I would encourage you to type your questions into the YouTube chat area. Well, I'm delighted to be here today uh, and to introduce my friend and former KQED colleague, Dave Iverson. Um, Dave, as you may know, is a writer. Uh, he's a documentary film producer. He's a director, um, retired broadcast journalist, I think is fair to say. Uh, obviously an author, and I can say without any qualifications at all that Dave is one of the kindest, most decent people that I've ever worked with, and I mean that very sincerely. His new book is called Winter Stars, An Elderly Mother, An Aging Son, and Life's Final Journey. Please welcome Dave Iverson. So, Dave, on many occasions when we both worked at KQED, um, you would mention your mom. Yeah. Um, uh, this or that. I mean, like we didn't have long conversations about her, but you'd keep me posted on what she was up to. And, you know, I was impressed mostly with how old she was <laughs> and doing well. She was just seemed That's to be so like, <laughs> um, but reading the book, of course, I've gotten a fuller picture of her. Um, and in fact, speaking of pictures, why don't we put up on the screen this picture of you and your mom at, your, at her 103rd birthday. Um, for somebody who's never met your mom, how would you describe her? Hmm. She liked a good party. Um, that's, how, that's where I'd start. She really did. I mean, she was a very social person. And our house was always a place where people um, gathered. And she took that role really seriously. Um, she was, you know, someone who really liked to make things happen, I would say. And that was always true. She was someone who, you know, graduated from high school at age 16, from college at 20, started a career. Um, and, you know, she was someone who was relentless in wanting to get things done. Um, she was a powerhouse teacher before she um, married and started raising a family. She was a volunteer. Um, she was someone who was a passionate sports fan. We'll see a picture or two of that later on. Um, she was someone who never stopped being in motion. Mm. She was extraordinarily active, very bright, kind of no nonsense, um, fierce, you know, you didn't really want to be on her bad side. She had an incredible glare, mm. as, as my brother and others <laughs> could, could testify. Um, I would occasionally try to outstare her. It never worked out very well. Yeah. Um, and so she was, she was a force. People used to say she was a force of nature, and that's yeah. true. Was she uh, combative? Could be. Um, um, uh, uh, that's my wife laughing. Probably. <laughs> um, uh, she she um, was someone who yeah, she stood up for what she believed in, and she did not broker uh, uh, difference uh, that that readily. Um, yeah, she was combative and grew more combative, I would say, as she grew older. There was less of an edit mechanism uh, Which in is place. often true with older folks, right? Yeah. Well, I, we do have more photos, and of course, we want to talk more, in more depth about some of those things, but 
I'd like to ask you to read a bit from the prologue sure. of the book to give us sort of the big picture of where the book begins and goes yeah. uh, over the course. Of Thank it. you. This begins actually with a scene that takes place about six years into when I moved down to take care of my mom. So I moved in with her when she was 95. And so this begins with actually a scene that takes place uh, later than that. Um, And so this is how the book begins. In the fall of 2013, I walked into the kitchen of my mom's house in Menlo Park, California. She was 101 years old and the early stages of dementia were beginning to take hold. She looked up at me and said, I think there are two Adelaides. There's the good Adelaide, the one who's pretty and smart and knows how to do things. And there's the bad Adelaide, the one who's ugly and stupid and can't do anything. I'm not sure which one is here right now, she said to me. But I think it's the bad Adelaide. My mom had always been a force. She'd graduated from high school at age 16, from college at 20, and at the top of her class in both. She'd been a teacher, a devoted spouse, a mother of three, a passionate sports fan, a loyal friend, and a powerhouse volunteer. And now the long arc of her remarkable life was turning in a new direction. Yet she'd been able to describe what was happening to her with searing precision and without tears. She was like that. She didn't blink, confronting most challenges with a firm, no-nonsense demeanor. No one ever trifled with Adelaide Iverson, and that included me. I'd moved in with my mom six years before, after my dad had died. She'd lived independently for 13 years, but at age 95, she'd had a difficult bout with pneumonia and couldn't manage fully on her own. And it didn't take much deliberation on my part to decide it just made sense for me to move in and help. But there was so much I didn't know. I didn't know I'd become so exhausted. I didn't know I'd be capable of getting so angry. I didn't know that I would be tested in ways I'd never dreamed or rewarded in ways I'd never dreamed as well. I didn't know I'd be joined and strengthened by remarkable women caregivers or that I'd discover the Parkinson's disease I'd been diagnosed with a few years before would present fewer challenges than being a caregiver. And I never imagined that after I moved back in, my mom would live for another full decade before passing away at the age of 105. This is the story of our journey and of the remarkable women who accompanied us and changed our lives. You, in that little passage there and throughout the book, make it seem that it was a quick decision that you made to move back into your boyhood home, into your bedroom that you were in as a boy. Um, Why was it so such a natural, reflexive yes? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it was several things. My mom and I had always been extraordinarily close. Um, We understood each other, I think, in a fundamental way. We were compatible. We shared the same sports team, you know, with the same politics. Um, We had something profoundly in common. I think it's also, though, really because I could. I was at a point in life where it was possible. I don't think I could have or would have um, 10 years earlier or maybe 10 years later. But at that point in my life, I was single. I had a significant other in my life, as we used to say, uh, my wife now, Lynn, but we lived separately. Um, I, f- I had flexibility. I hosted forum, but only one day a week. <laughs> um, I made films, but that had a lot of flexibility to it. I just felt like I could. And so I felt like, well, yeah, this makes sense. She's 95. I'm 59. It's certainly not going to be a really long-term assignment. Um, I I can do this. Um, And I honestly didn't think about it a lot more than that. Yeah. If you had thought about it, especially knowing how it all went, what would you have asked? Like, what would you have wanted to know before you decided yes? Mm, Great question. I would have asked myself, how good are you when you're exhausted? I would have asked myself... What's your capacity for anger? And then I would have had to realize I have no idea 
But I, I, I think that's something I would have assessed. I would have thought about, asked myself, do you really think you can do this? How good are you when you're not in charge of things? Because you're a guy who likes to be in charge. Are you really going to be okay when you're not, in fact, hmm. in charge? How is this going to affect the other relationships in your life? Um, what are you going to do about money if that becomes tight and you can't hire the caregivers who will help you while you work? There are a lot of things to think about, and I don't think we do. You know, when you become a parent, you ask yourself a lot of questions, right? You read a lot of books, you go to a lot of websites, you talk to your friends, you're excited about all of that. And yet you were never quite ready to be a parent, but I don't think anyone is fully ready to care for a parent. Yeah. And uh, your mom, uh, it, my impression is that you were the favorite, uh, which and I know you have a brother here. So I yeah, know my but, brother would disagree. Oh, he uh, would disagree. OK, he was. No, I just, but I mean, did, did she expect you, you to move in and well, take care of her? I think that's the right. That's a, a fair question. My brothers and I were all loved equally. She was devoted to all of us um, and she believed in all of us. And which is a great gift that a, a parent could give a child. She, she was our biggest fan, Paul, Peter, and, and me. Um, but my mom and I had a different relationship, I would say. I was the one who could sort of tease her. I was the one who could get away with things, you know. Um, I was able to um, cajole her in a way that was, I think, easier uh, for me. I tell a story in the, in the book um, about how, and my mom used to love to repeat this story, that when I was two or three years old, I looked up at her and said once, so mom, we really like each other, don't we? Um, and, and, well, actually, I'm sorry, the quote was actually, we really like ourselves, <laughs> which, is, which is true. Um, and so we were, we thought, you know, we thought we were pretty good stuff. Um, and, and I think that, that had an effect on, on, uh, on all of this too. Yeah. I, I want to show another picture cause you mentioned that you said you had the same teams, which I, I, I assumed meant, you know, maybe the 49ers and the giants. I don't know. But then there, then we have, um, this, yeah. uh, she was an ardent fan of all things Stanford, right? Yeah. Especially the yeah. baseball and the football teams. Um, tell us about this picture. Yeah. My folks. I came to the Bay Area in 1946 after my dad got out of the army after World War II. Um, and he had been stationed for a while in the Presidio during the war. And he'd fallen in love with the Bay Area. He'd grown up where you grew up in Buffalo, New York. And he thought the Bay Area was kind of a cool place. And so he came back for graduate school at the age of 36. He had dropped out of college during the Depression because he was the one in the family who could get a job to support his parents and his younger uh, siblings. So he didn't graduate from college until he was in his mid to late 20s. Then the war happened. So he didn't start graduate school until 35. And they landed at Stanford. And they fell in love with Stanford. And they never left. But in many ways, my mom was the biggest champion of Stanford. She loved Stanford University. And they went to sports games, basketball, baseball, football, forever. And at one point... I was sitting at a baseball game at Sunken Diamond, which is one of the prettiest little ballparks, college ballparks in America, thinking about it. Well, how many games has she gone to? And I realized it was, you know, 13, 1500 games. And I thought, really, we ought to do something. And so we arranged to have her throw out the first pitch at a Stanford game at the age of 94. And so that's that's me escorting her. This is her high fiving and shaking hands with all the the players, which she just loved. Did she throw a strike? And she, well, it was the high hard one. <laughs> she, uh, it was about it. It was about like the distance between you and me. And there was a Stanford player caught it. And she, <laughs> my daughter sort of warmed her up ahead of time. And she but the coach was great. He came out and, and said, uh, you know, um, we're going to need, need an extra reliever this year. And I can tell you've got a pretty good arm. Yeah. Um, I'm which, sure she just beamed with Which that Adelaide one. just adored. Yeah. I mean, she loved men anyway, but men in uniform. I was going to say, I mean, that you, you write about that in men in yeah. uniform. Yeah. Your dad uh, will have a picture of him in uniform in yeah. a minute. But um, so this is another uh, Stanford picture. Uh, and you arranged, I mean, for many, you know, the Stanford Cardinal football team for many years was not so great. Yeah. Uh, and then they got Luck. Andrew Luck. <laughs> Literally. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. I think his signature yeah, is probably Yeah, this is an Andrew Luck 
autograph football among, and all his teammates. Um, we had a wonderful neighbor at that time, Laura Richardson, and one of her best friends was married to one of the Stanford uh, football coaches. And so he arranged to get this football autograph for her 99th birthday. birthday. And my friend, Risa Tansy, who's here tonight, and who's so a wonderful photographer, uh, took this picture of Adelaide uh, peering over her football. Um, but she loved that football, <laughs> and she loved Stanford. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the caregiving in a second. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned Lynn, and I, just as I said, you'd always, when we worked together at KQED, had talked about your mom. You also talked about Lynn. Lynn and I met uh, at a holiday party right. at our house, I think, right. a, years yeah, ago. You're in John's house. How did, how did your moving into your boyhood home uh, at a time you, the two of you were, you had never lived together? Um, I mean, how did that affect the relationship? Yeah. You want my answer or Lynn's? You've got the microphone. (laughs) Well, we'll see if we coincide. I'll get a a briefing on this later. (laughs) Um, Lynn's an incredibly understanding and generous person. And I think she understood that this was something I felt I I could do and wanted to do. And And she was wonderfully supportive of that. She'd come down once a week from her home in Albany, just north of Berkeley, and spend a night, uh, which was a godsend, um, and finally encouraged me to get a bed other than the 10-year-old, the the, the, the twin bed I'd slept in since I was 10 years old. Um, So, you know, and and we would, would, um, and and so we maintained a great closeness. But in time, Lynn said, you know, why don't you come up to my house once in a while? And, 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 you know, there was a time that Lynn and I both joke about um, when I, when Stanford got good in football and was going to the Rose Bowl and I, and Lynn and I were both alums and wanted to go. And I said, well, you know, wouldn't it be kind of cool to take Adelaide too? And her response was, you two have a nice time. (laughs) So, so there's that part of Lynn. Yeah. Well, and it went both ways. I mean, there was a story in the book about your mom being a little short with Lynn. I think that's, Do you think, I mean, I'm jumping ahead here, but the dementia as it progressed, um, there was a moment in the book you described where she sort of thinks you're married, that you you are your dad or some version of that. Um, Do you think in some ways she, you know, especially as she got older, felt that Lynn in some way got between you, the two of you? Yes, I do. I mean, I think that... um... One, Adelaide really did love men <laughs> and preferred men. Um, she had wonderful woman, women friends, very close women friends, but there was, she had a, a different kind of tuning fork inside her when it came to being around men. Didn't matter whether they were married or not. She loved our, our family, our, our parish priest, Father Xavier. Um, she just loved being around men. So that's a little bit of it. But yeah. I think so. I think that she, I think she felt kind of her primacy was sort of challenged a bit. And she could be short and tough with Lynn and with other women, with my sisters-in-law, with my aunt, with any number of friends. She could, she could pack a punch. Mm. And that wasn't easy. And there were times when she was really, really difficult. And, and I think I know that it required Lynn to sort of... Um, her best self to kind of contend with that um, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And, and yeah, there was a point, it was probably one of the more mind bending things she ever said to me, but I walked into her bedroom one day and she said, David, I know that you were married to someone else before you were married to me. Yeah. So what do you do with that? Right. Right. And yeah. And, and, her dementia had obviously advanced at that point. But as I talk about some in the book, you know, I, of course, I, I corrected her countless times when she would face things that were wrong. And I regret that because there's no point to that. And in that case, I think I said something profoundly unhelpful like, Mom, I'm not your husband, I'm your son. But you know, what I came to understand, Scott, is that there was a certain truth often in the things that she said, even though they might not be factually true. 
in a sense, I think she was saying in that moment, I want you, I need you, and I think that you might be, you know, maybe you're with someone else instead. I, I don't know exactly. I'm hypothesizing. But I do believe there was sometimes a truth beneath the words. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges when we're with someone with dementia is to not necessarily focus on the words, but focus on who that person is. And not who you want her to be, but who she is. Mm. Not who she was, Mm. but who she is. Mm. And hear that, and hear that emotion, and try to be there for that person. Yeah. You, uh, of course, describe her as someone who's fiercely independent. And so when you moved in uh, to help care for her, uh, did she resist the help? And how did that progress? Because over time, I mean, she must have realized, I do, I very much need the help. Yeah, it's interesting because she was fiercely independent, lived proudly independently for 13 years after my dad died, from the age of 82 to the age of 95. And she prided herself on that loved being able to be independent and increasingly sort of took pride in saying, yeah, I'm 95. You know, I might not seem like it, but that's who I am. But interestingly, when she was hospitalized that first time and I, and, and I knew she really couldn't function anymore on her own. And I brought up the idea with some trepidation, mom, I think we're going to get, have to get some help here. She was like, yeah, sure. Right. And, and I came to understand that for her, it was all means to an end. If that meant that she could still live at home, well, that's what counted. Yeah. And if that meant she had to have someone there to maybe help her get dressed or to make dinner or that I would be around more, well, then why not? If, if uh, she needed a walker to get from her bedroom into the kitchen, fine. It was like she somehow knew I want to live a certain way. And if that requires me to have a supporting cast, then so be it. She was a star, though. Always. That's right. And, <laughs> and, and I, and, but that's actually a wonderful gift to people who are caregivers. If, if that person accepts help. And in a sense, my mom, there was a bit of the queen bee to her, you know. And, I think she, and, and so I think she said, well, well, of course my son is going to move in and take care of me. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. There, you quote somebody in the book, and I'm, gonna, I'm paraphrasing, but the, the gist of it, I think, is, or maybe it was you, I'm quoting, but it was, um, you know, people uh, try to be ready to be a parent. You know, you prepare to be a parent, but to care for a parent, no one's really ready yeah. or prepared right. for that. Right. What, what I, if I got that right, or right enough, uh, what, what did that mean? Like, what was it that you could not have been prepared for? Right. Or was it all of it? Well, it's all of it, but some of it, there actually are some parallels to a young child um, being awakened at night, you know, but it's one thing to be awakened at night when you're 30, another thing to be awakened at night all the time when you're 60. Um, My mom, it wasn't safe for my mom to go to the bathroom on her own at night. And so I would usually hear her walker hit the hardwood floor on the hallway between our bedrooms, but not always. And so we put in a little bell that she could ring. But yeah, I wasn't prepared to be awakened three or four times at night. I wasn't really prepared for the intimacy that caregiving requires. In the end, caregiving is, it is an act of love. And like all acts of love, it's, it's, it's a physical act. You have to be there for someone. You have to help that person in the bathroom, get dressed, um, spoon feed if need be, wipe a brow, um, tuck her in, be there during the night. It is intensely physical. You know, when my mom broke her ankle after a fall, you know, I had to be able to transfer her from bed to commode and back again. All of that I wasn't ready for. Um, And I don't know as anyone can be, and I think it's okay that I wasn't ready for it, because honestly, if I'd known all that, I might not have. And I'm glad that I did for many reasons, not only because I think it made a difference in my mom's life, but it also made a difference in me. It Mm. changed me. Um, It it, um, opened me up to things. It improved some of my lesser, uh, less attractive attributes, and it introduced me to these remarkable women who cared for my mom 
that was a great gift in both of our lives. Yeah. You, you talk in the book about how uh, lucky you were uh, in terms of having resources. Your mom, your parents bought that house in Menlo Park for, what, $15,000 in the 1950s, I think it was. Uh, it was worth a little more, a tad bit more, as you said, I think. Um, you know, you had, you had the time. Uh, you, you had the means to, you know, be able to support yourself while you were also... You know, how... Um, and you had a good relationship with your mom before this happened, right? How would it have complicated things, do you think, if you did not have a particularly good relationship with her as a child or as a, an adult? I mean, I think I had it about as good as any family caregiver can have it. You know, I, I had those resources. I had flexibility. I could go to work. There was respite in that. I could get days off. Uh, there was respite in that. Many family caregivers, especially those who are caregivers for spouses, don't have those opportunities. And if you don't have the resources that we did, you know, my mom's retirement income was sufficient for a while to help pay for caregivers. We could split the bills because I was living there. And then we could borrow against the house, which we did for a long time until we exhausted the home equity loan. And then we could get another loan that could be paid back when the house was sold. So I had enormous advantages. And the fact that my mom and I actually got along most of the time was immensely um, beneficial. And yet it was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. So what does that tell you? Mm. You know, if I had all those advantages, I had Lynn, I had my brother and Yoko living nearby. I had a a loving brother and sister-in-law in in Arizona and and wonderful friends, um, many of whom are here tonight. Um, If I hadn't had that, where would I be? It can be so lonely. And we're not... We don't pay enough attention to that in this country. We just don't. Not the resources, not the support, not any of it. Yeah. Talk about the women uh, that you came to know so well. I think Eileen is one who moved in at some point. Um, uh, Mele, if I'm pronouncing that right, Sinai. Uh, Talk about these women, Uh, all of them women of color, immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. They were extraordinary. Um, They brought in so much love, so much compassion, but also so much skill. One of the stories I mention in the book is that my mom's skin until the day she died was beautiful. That doesn't happen. It just does not happen, especially with someone who is bedridden as she was largely the last year and a half of her life. That takes great skill. We don't appreciate those skills enough. And, and, the women you just mentioned, um, Malay Taffa, Ronette Morales, Eileen Khan, Sanai Latu, all had great skill and compassion. And they loved my mom. And, 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 and they were all her match, which takes some doing, you know. Um, and I got to be very close to them. We would stay up at night and talk. And I learned their stories and where they'd come from and how they'd wound up in America. Um, and they, and we respected each other. You know, I, I know they knew I valued them, but they also respected and valued me and admired what I was trying to do, even though I would fall flat on my face Mm. countless times. Um, and they taught me so much. They also taught me that life is not always so easy in this country if your last name is Taufa or Latu or Morales or Khan, if your skin is brown and if English is not your first language. I understood those things intellectually as a, as a nice Bay Area liberal guy, you know, but I didn't know it. I didn't really know it. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought all that with them Mm. along with just extraordinary devotion and loyalty. Mm. What do you think? uh, You can't train someone to be that way, right? I mean, how do you think that that those women were just, and others like them are just attracted to that work because that's kind of who they are. They get something out of that as well. Some of it may be a matter of, of culture. Eileen and I used to talk about this, how she said when she came to this country, it was like, what, what is this? Um, why are people in these assisted living facilities? Why are in these nursing homes? That's not how we do things. She was from Fiji um, in my country. I think they all brought an understanding that caring for the old is, is part of life's bargain and that you need to be there 
for people who are old. Um, but it also does take skill and training, Scott. I mean, uh, Eileen was a certified nursing assistant. She had been through a lot of training. Um, and, and our hospice nurse late in my lo- mom's life would always defer to Eileen because he understood that Eileen actually understood parts of my mom, parts of her body, how her skin would respond in a way that Chris did not. Um, he admired her skill too. Um, and again, you know, the average wage for healthcare workers, according to the Brookings Institution in 2019, home healthcare providers, home caregivers, was 12 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. Now I could do a lot better than that because I had this built-in golden egg of a house that I could borrow against. But we sure ought to think more about how we provide for the people who care for us. Why do you, th- why do you think it is so undervalued, given how much so many people, including people who vote on these things, uh, count on? Because care- we don't think about it enough. You know, as Atul Gawande says in his wonderful book, Being Mortal, you know, hope is not a plan. And yet that's what we mostly do. We sort of hope it'll be fine. And we don't understand. We think Medicare pays for home, home uh, caregiving. It does not. We don't, we don't face this soon enough. You know, we think, oh, yeah, someday I might, might need to care for my dad. But, um, but uh, what's for dinner tonight? You know, we don't, we don't focus on it. I think that's a big part of it. But we don't value those skills. We don't value, just like we don't value child care workers. Ajahn Poo, who leads the National Domestic Care Workers, uh, Domestic Workers Alliance, likes to say that care is the work that all other work depends on. You know, if we didn't have child care workers, where would working parents be? If we didn't have teachers, where would working parents be? And if we didn't have people who provided elder care, where would I be, you be, you know? Um, we just don't value that enough. We think we want immigrants to come to this country with specialized skills. Well, yeah, but what specialized skills count? And, and I argue that we ought to count those skills as much as uh, keyboard skills. Yeah, yeah. And of course, many, most, maybe all of the caregivers have their own families yes. and their own issues yes. around yes. caring, perhaps for a parent even. I mean, how did they negotiate that and what did they tell you about that? Yeah. I mean, I, when I first, the very first caregiver I hired um, was a, a woman of Tongan, uh, a Tongan American named Tila Langi, and she was with us for about six, eight months. She was wonderful. And then one day she said, uh, Dave, I'm, I'm pregnant, um, can't come anymore. And during that first six months, I'd already learned that if Tila's kids were sick, then I had to make shift and do other things. We, you know, you have to, it's, it sounds ridiculously naive, but I really didn't understand that they had lives too. And they had stuff they had to take care of. Um, and so, yeah, there was, and you and then when someone leaves, you're n- nothing is more fearsome than the prospect that you might have to quit your job and do this alone yourself. So yes, those lives have to be juggled. And that's why, you know, for many years, Eileen was sleeping on the floor of her parents' house nearby because her own home was 75 miles away and she couldn't commute back and forth. And she worked two jobs. Most of those caregivers, Mele, Sinai, Eileen, Ronette, all of them had two jobs. You know, so I don't think we understand that either. Yeah. And it's easy for those, you know, you, uh, not, I shouldn't say it's easy, but you know, you appreciate that sacrifice that they make and how hard it is to make ends meet. Do, is there a, you could, you could easily understand there'd be like a bitterness, you know, about why aren't we treated better? Yeah. Why, I mean, but I didn't get that from the book. Not from them. They're, they're, um, you know, I, I stay, I talked to Eileen just the other day, um, and um, she's now not in caregiving. She has a different job, and she said um, she heard the the interview on Forum um, that I did last week with Alexis Madrigal, and she called me up afterwards and said, you know, I think I need to go back to being a caregiver because that's who I am, Mm. and that's what I do. So yes, there wasn't, there wasn't, I don't think, resentment in them. Um, And I think they've they also knew that Adelaide and I, my mom and I, cared for them. Uh, 
dearly and respected them enormously. Yeah. I want to show another photograph. This is your mom and dad, Bill uh, Iverson. Uh, what year are we looking at here? That is September of 1942. That's their wedding day. They're actually standing on the steps of uh, the church because my mom was Catholic. My dad was not. And in those days, you couldn't get married inside the church if one person uh, wasn't Catholic. Um, And he was um, in the army, had been in the army for about a year and a half at that point. And he had told my mom that he, they couldn't get married until he became a, an officer. Hmm. And so he, uh, so he is Captain Bill Iverson at, at that point, and he felt at that point then that they could get married. Yeah, and it seemed like they had a really special relationship. Um, what traits did you get from each of them? <laughs> um, well, I would say my mom and I are both people who like being right, and like being in charge, like making things happen. Um, I think from my dad, I got a love of, of words and of language and of writing. And my dad was in radio in Buffalo yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in the early days. He was on the original Lone Ranger, which was wow. um, penned by Buffalo native Fran Stryker. And mm. it actually started in Buffalo before the show was moved to Detroit. Um, so, yeah, I think I, a little bit of the ham and the performer and, and, um, um, uh, and the love of language yeah. maybe comes from my dad. And the radio. Yeah. Right. Uh, you have been very open about your... Parkinson's disease, you did a documentary for Frontline about your dad, yourself, and your brother, who uh, your dad passed away, uh, and, and your mom cared for him. Right. Um, what did you learn watching her take care of him that yeah. affected you as you, you know, yeah. thought about this decision to move back into your house? Yeah, I was actually making that film, uh, my father, my brother, and me, um, at, the, at, at the, the time I moved in uh, with my mom um, in late 2007. The film aired in early in 2009, but I, we had started filming at that point. In an odd way, it brought me closer to that story because my mom and I would sit up at night and you know, drink scotch and sit by the fire and talk about my dad. And, um, and I interview her in that film, and she talks about my dad. Um, and it it actually allowed me to feel good about the fact that I could do this, that I couldn't be who my mom was for him, but I could be there for her, at least in some way, and that we could sort of, you know, literally be on the same team. Um, and I felt, I think as many people do, who are diagnosed with a, a challenging condition, and I've been extraordinarily fortunate. My Parkinson's is nothing like what my dad faced or my, older, my late older brother Peter faced. Um, but it allowed me to feel good about myself, that I still could do that. Because I think when you're in that situation, you want to feel like you could still do things. Mm-hmm. And being able to do that was, was something I, I took great um, pleasure and, 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 and pride in, too. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you alluded earlier to some of the things that you learned about yourself, you know, as this was happening, including your capacity for anger. Um, and I wonder if you could read uh, a passage from the book that uh, speaks to that. Yeah. Well, this is something that my, my younger brother Paul and his wife Yoko and my cousin Paul, um, who I think were all there that night, may remember. Um, and it, it's, uh, it was a night when um, we went to dinner at my... Aunt Alice's house, who's my dad's much younger sister, and she sort of took over for my dad the sort of family host, hostess role. Um, and, and so we went to dinner that night, but I could tell right from the beginning that my mom was not happy. Um, and, and, and I, at that point, this is maybe two years into my, my caregiving time, um, was frustrated by that, was frustrated by the fact that she was, could be cranky and grumpy and I was tired and I'd been up a lot, you know, a many, during many nights before. And so I'll just bring, begin with this passage. On this particular night, my Aunt Alice was having my mom and me and the rest of the family over for dinner. And from the moment my mom's walker hit Alice's living room floor with an aggravated thump, I had the sense that we were all in for it. 
She wasn't happy, snapping at my sister-in-law when she offered her an appetizer, complaining about where she was sitting, and responding crossly when one of us tried to respond to her grievances. Over the hour, I, next hour, I found myself getting more and more irritated. Finally, I stepped over her, to her and said, exactly as I would have to a four-year-old, if you can't act better, we're going home. A few minutes later, we headed for the dinner table. I didn't know you could stalk across the floor while using a walker, but my mom did. Alice asked her again where she wanted to sit, and my mom snapped at her. That did it. That's it, I said. We're going home. I steered her out of the room, out the doorway, into the car, and we drove home in silence. When we arrived back at the house, I ushered her into her bedroom with hands as comforting as steel. She stood next to her bed for a moment, gripping her walker. And then she just collapsed onto the bed. I hate myself, she wailed. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. I didn't say a word. I didn't feel anything other than a cold sense of satisfaction. I was acting like a self-righteous parent who'd appropriately reprimanded a bratty but now repentant child. But as I look back at it, I don't think I fully took in what my mom was saying. I think when she said she hated herself, she meant exactly that. She hated who she was becoming, hated the sense that she was increasingly trapped in a world where she could no longer be who she had always been including the person who had always hosted family occasions. My mom's wail was from the heart, but sometimes I felt like my own heart had turned cold. Hmm. You know, I, when you, we talked on the phone about uh, anger, you know, and that was before I had read the book and read that passage. And is that your anger? Is that how you express it? Because it's interesting to me because that's a real quiet anger. Yeah. You know? Yeah, controlled anger. Yeah. No yelling? Oh, no, I yelled. There's, there's a story about that. Yeah. yeah. How did she uh, respond when you yelled? Well, I'll tell that story briefly. I was just furious with her for reasons I cannot remember one day. And I, and I was... Um, just I blew up at her, and I did yell, and, and, uh, and she burst into tears. Hmm. And my response, Scott, was to say, just go ahead and cry. Wow. And then I walked out the door, slammed the door, stood in the garage, and I remember the rain was falling, and I could hear the rain on the roof. And then I walked back into the kitchen, and I sat down next to my mom, and I burst into tears. And my mom looked up and said, don't cry, David. Don't cry. Hmm. She understood. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we understood each other. We, we came to understand all of it, you know, the, hang, the anger as well as the love, hmm. the sorrow as well as the joy. You get all of it when you're a caregiver. You yeah. get all of it. Yeah. And, and of course that's true. You know, sorrow and joy are often, you know, tied together. Um, but we also made it through. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at my phone not because I'm looking for email or something. I, they're <laughs> texting me questions. So uh, it, when you see me doing this, that is what I'm doing, is scrolling through these. Um, you know, you, uh, as you're caring for your mom, um, also had your Parkinson's diagnosis. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, as you saw this journey with your mom and saw her approach end of life, um, you know, how did it affect the way you think about that for yourself? Yeah. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that the time... I was caring for my mom. Three of the most significant things in my life took place. Two of them professional, my father, my brother, and me. Three of them, in a way, hosting forum. And the other film, the 
meant more to me than any other I ever made, Capturing Grace, which was about film and dance. And I married Lynn. You know, all of those happened during that time. And I think the Parkinson's part of it is also not coincidental. It made me want to understand Parkinson's that much more. My mom was really the first person who taught me that if you are living with a disease like Parkinson's, which I came to think of as a disease of subtraction, it takes things from you one by one, that you sure as hell better believe in the power of addition. You keep doing things. You keep going to basketball games. You know, people would sometimes think my mom was sort of tough because she'd say, Bill, get on your coat. You know, we got to go. We got we got a game to go to. But that's the right thing to do. Mm. You know, she showed me that. She showed what it takes to care for someone um, late in life when that person can no longer really communicate at all. She would tell me that she and my dad had a wonderful conversation and I would think, what are you talking about? But I realized in a way they absolutely did. She showed me all of that. I learned all of that. And I also learned something about what it means to have a caregiving community, which is what happens in that film, Capturing Grace, about dance, and what it means to care for one another and be there for one another. I've been so fortunate, Scott, in so many things in my life but oddly, Parkinson's is also one of them. And I know that is not true for many. And I wouldn't act like that some, you know, it can be a great gift. You know, it's a silver lining. That's, that's crap. But for me, it opened a door to understanding the disease, to meeting other people with it, to become engaged with the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which has meant the world to me, to run in a couple of marathons, to raise money for that foundation. It has opened more doors than it's closed. Yeah. I want to take some audience questions uh, that are not on my phone. Here's one. Um, and it relates very much to that. How did or do you take care of yourself you know, during this period of time? Yeah. I think it's a question every caregiver has heard. And those who are here tonight or watching online who are caregivers know that. Um, and it's a little truism that's often said to people who are caring for someone, remember that you can't care for someone else unless you take care of yourself. Well, that's baloney. You know, that's just not true. It happens all the time. Ask any caregiver. Caregivers take care of people and not themselves all the time. It comes with the territory. Now, that doesn't mean you should ignore that. My other little truism about this is that all caregivers, all family caregivers need more help, and all caregivers realize that later than they should. So yeah, you absolutely need to take care of yourself. But it is not easy. It means arranging for extra care. I was, again, I was lucky. I could have someone. I eventually had someone come in on the weekend so that I could get away. Not everyone can do that. So I could take care of myself. But many family caregivers cannot. And so it's true. You can't, you can't do the long-distance journey that caregiving is forever if you don't take care of yourself. That is true. But it's not easy to obtain that, and we need to make it easier. Yeah. Um, in fact, you wrote an op-ed in the Chronicle about the Build Back Better plan and yeah. you know, being angry at Joe Manchin, among others, who... Well, don't forget the, the 50 Republicans. You know, um, uh, it, 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 yes, yeah, Joe, Joe Manchin, um, yeah, I wish, I wish. But um, it's not, it's not, well... Enough said. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things, obviously you made, uh, you know, a sacrifice. And um, I don't know, it's probably, sounds like it's one you would make again. But, um, you know, part of what I would think encourages one to continue doing that is to have the person say, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. And, and so this question from the audience is, do you think your mother knew the sacrifice that you made on her behalf? Yeah, great, great question. What do you think, Paul? Uh, <laughs> my brother just said no comment. Um, I think she did, but I also thought, she, I think she thought it was the most natural thing in the world for me to, to be there. You know, kind of why, why wouldn't I? 
Um, and I think she knew that I was continuing with my life. She was immensely proud of the fact of my, of, of my work and, and my job. She, would, she loved telling people about, about what I did. I used to joke that her, you know, she only paid attention to two stations, KQED and ESPN. <laughs> um, and, and so she, she, so she knew I was still doing those things. I think towards the end, those last five years when her dementia was more advanced, maybe not as much, but there were moments, you know, there were moments like that one when she told me, don't cry. That tells you a lot about what she knew. And I think she did, I think she did value that. Um, Did she thank you? She thanked me in ways beyond words. Um, She thanked me by the way she would reach out and touch me. She would thank me by wanting me to go do things, um, other than maybe see Lynn. Um, (laughs) She would thank me by um, our conversations, by sharing things together that we both loved. She'd thank me by how much love I knew she had for my my dad and my brothers and me. Our family wasn't one to, uh, to do a lot of hugging and, and thank you. Emoting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, at least not my folks. They were very proper, unless you read my dad's letters during World War II. Um, but otherwise, they were, they were quite proper. Yeah, well, now I've got to ask you about that. So you, you, you did find a box of letters that your mom had kept that, uh, that he had written to her uh, yeah. during the war, and they were a little racy. Yeah, yeah. You want me Is to that... read one? Yeah, sure. Go for it. <laughs> Let's see. Did she, I forget, did she, did she tell you that they were there or you just found them? No, these were in a box in my dad's study. And yeah. after he died and I was going through stuff in his study and yeah. sorting out files and stuff, they were just in a cardboard box, hundreds and hundreds of letters piled in. And it took me a while to read them. And some I didn't read until much later. But here's one written, uh, this is in the summer of 1940 when they were, they, they were apart for most of World War II for six years, but they would occasionally manage these rendezvous. Dear Adelaide, be prepared to be trampled in the rush of my greeting when we meet next. I'm going to overwhelm you as no woman has ever been overwhelmed before. I think I'll shout and leap into the air, throw my hat down, stomp on it, seize you, fling you over my shoulder, gallop madly down the street to the hotel. Wow. (laughs) Did you ever see that kind of passion between the two of them? No. I can't say that I did, but I love these letters. Yeah, yeah. Once he wrote during, during uh, he, he said, uh, the, he was in basic training. Rest of today's training is to be devoted to organized athletics. I'm organizing my own games on the bunk. Would you like to join me? Wow. <laughs> um, let's, oh, 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 before I get to audience questions, um, I want to... As I was reading the book, I was wondering, was there a part of you that did this in spite of, you know, all the challenges and sacrifices because you felt in some way you had fallen short as a son and you were making this up to her? Hmm. Falling short of, of, you know, were there things that you, you know, maybe you weren't there for her as much when she was younger or you were younger Hmm. or, Hmm. uh, you know, just... A do-over of, yeah, of sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. I lived, you know, I spent the first half of my, um, or more than the first half of my professional life from the time I was in my early 20s to the time I was in my early 50s in the Midwest, uh, mostly in Madison, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. town you also know. Um, and, and I would come home a lot, and a lot meaning, you know, two, three, four times a year at most, um, but I, I, it, they, were, they were so, my mom was so self-sufficient. I never felt, and she never wanted uh, that. So I don't think I felt like I was making things up. I guess maybe in some ways I felt like it was now my turn, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. My mom, my, my, um, uh, uh, a friend pointed out earlier that, that um, my my uh, 
my dad in some ways was also a, a care provider and that he took care of his family during the depression when he was the only one who could hold it, get a job and, and work. Um, and, and my mom had provided this wonderful care for, for my dad. And I felt like, okay, it's my turn and I can do this. But I don't think it was because I felt like I'd, I'd fallen short before. Yeah. I mean, maybe my mom felt that, but I didn't. <laughs> All right, let's see if I can get something off my phone here. Uh, this is a comment. Uh, everything resonates. This is my life. Look forward to reading the book. Okay, that's a comment, not a question. And then from Mela, uh, talk about the music artist, please. Not sure if this is relevant. Um, do you know what she's referring to? I don't. Sorry. Okay. I'll wait for another one. Um, here's another one from the audience here. Um, what advice do you have for anyone thinking about quitting their job to care for their parent? Yeah, yeah. That's a sacrifice. Financial Absol- sacrifice. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because I continued to work through the whole time I was with my mom. Um, I think there are a lot of hard questions. To ask about that, how much will you miss work? Are you really prepared to, to to do that? How well do you get along with the person you're going to care for? How will it change the other relationships in your in your life? Um, how's the money going to work? How are you going to um, do on not getting much sleep? Um, are you prepared to get angrier than you ever thought you could? Mm. I mean, I think there are a whole lot of things we don't think about um, that I probably should have thought about and mm. didn't. And again, maybe it's okay not to think about it because then you just plunge in. But for sure, especially if you're leaving work to do this, you have to feel really good and comfortable and not have it feel like... Not, I didn't feel like it was something I should do. It was, it was truly something I, I wanted to do and felt like I could. I think that's really important. I think you have to feel that way. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the dementia. And uh, you mentioned, you described Parkinson's as a disease of subtraction. Yeah. You know, uh, dementia is very much like that as well. Um, How did, uh, there's a funny part in the book where you you say, and kind of what you alluded to earlier where you corrected her. You'd go to Stanford games with her and no matter what happened, Stanford won. You know, she would ask, who won? How did it turn out? Oh, they, oh, they won. You know, because you realize that was sort of the path of least resistance. Uh, For sure, there are, you, you, you learn to, to deflect certain things. It took me way too long to insist <laughs> on being correct and right. You know, if she just, you know, for a while she thought she'd gone to law school. And I would say, no, mom, you didn't go to law school. And, and instead of realizing, well, actually, she could have gone to law school and she would have been a hell of a lawyer. And to, and to think of it that way mm. and to go there and say, well, what are you thinking of? Why are you interesting? Mm. What kind of law were you, did you do? Yeah. You know, yeah. it took me a really long time to realize that. And the Stanford game was once when I took her to a, a very exciting Stanford football game when she was probably 101 and Stanford lost. And, and as we were leaving the stadium, uh, my mom said, that was such a great game. And I said, yeah, yeah it was, but ugh, I just, I really thought we were going to win. And she said, well, I thought we did. And yeah, from that moment on, Stanford had a perfect season. <laughs> Football, basketball, they always won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she maintains this sort of intermittent clarity. Yes, you know. yes. Um, and, and in fact, the, the title of the book, Winter Stars, uh, comes from the, a chapter where you describe the last Christmas season yeah. that you spent with her in the house before she passes. Um, talk about that and, uh, and, and those, revel- not revelations, but the, uh, the insights that she yeah. had about her life in this moment, her final moments, really. Well, she was, I, she was not a poetic person for the first sort of 100 years or so of her life, I would say. She was a person of business and p- prose. But she was, she was also someone, she was all business-like, but her business in the end was us, you know, our, our family and the world around her. You know, she was fiercely engaged with, with civic life. And as she grew older, she would sometimes say things in the most remarkable ways that were 
not, I mean, she gave a description once that I thought was about as good a description as you could ever have of dementia when she said to me one day, um, the son understands me. The sun is surrounded by clouds and is trying to poke through the gray. Hmm. Well, I can't imagine a better description of what it must feel like if you can't quite say what you still might know inside. And the night you're describing was the last Christmas we spent together. And she was always a really restless person. She was always wanting to do things. Always, she would, she would get bruises on her legs sometimes. Eileen or and I would have to wrap her legs because she would bang her leg against the guardrails of the hospital bed we had for her in her bedroom because she wanted to get out. She wanted to go places. She was never done. And I sort of came to a point where I thought, you know, I wanted her to die in peace. Like that was just maybe not going to happen. But on this Christmas night when I went in and saw her, I really could tell right away that there was something different, that she, she was quite remarkably at peace. And we just sat, I just sat next to her, my hand resting on hers. And after a while, um, she said to me, you look wonderful. And I said, well, you look wonderful too. And she said... And then I said, we're quite a pair, Mom, aren't we? And she said, what a pair. And then she was quiet for a long time. And she had said those things with more clarity than anything she'd said in recent months. And then she looked up at me and said, I feel lucky. And I said, well, I feel lucky too. I feel lucky for being with you, for for being, having been with you during this time and for all you've given to me in my life. And that is something I will always remember. And she was quiet. And then she looked at me again and she had these amazing eyes. She looked at me with eyes as bright as winter stars. And she said, I feel lucky because there's love all around. Mm. And I knew then that even though my time with my mom was not complete, that our journey in a sense was that we had survived (laughs) all our bouts of anger and frustration. But in the end, we had come to this place that this had taken us on a journey that we had never imagined to places we'd never imagined, but we had come to this place. Um, And that this caregiving had enabled me, had given me the opportunity to be with someone I loved Mm. and to hear this great truth, you know, Mm. that there's love all around. Yeah. Um, Toward the end, you're, you, when it's becoming more clear that she is near the end, uh, you deal with the hospice workers. Yeah. And there was a fair amount of frustration. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I felt it just reading it, yeah. um, you know, in terms of how quickly they were there, how responsive yeah. they were. But that's a whole other yeah. profession and, you know, yeah. uh, kind of caregiving, really. Yeah. Well, how, I mean, for the, in the main, hospice was wonderful. We had this fabulous nurse, Chris Brady, who understood my mom, didn't hurt that he was young and good-looking, um, and, and he was fabulous. He was incredibly respectful. He would always begin by saying, Mrs. Iverson, how are you today? And then he'd say, I'm going to take your temperature, and this is what I'm going to do. He focused on her, not on me. He wasn't talking to me. He was talking to Adelaide. Hospice was wonderful. But yes, in that last 72 hours of my mom's life, Chris wasn't there, there was, you know, an on-call nurse who was, I was trying to reach. And I was so frustrated because my mom was struggling to breathe. Eileen and I were trying to figure out, well, how much morphine do we give her? We'll give her a little. And what do we do? And I finally got through to someone and this person said, and I said, what should I do? And the, and the, the person on call said, 
you should do what you're comfortable doing. And I said, that is not helpful. (laughs) And, and, and I hung up, you know, I was, I was mad. Um, And then the person who was supposed to come was supposed to come at five in the morning, didn't come until five, didn't come until six, didn't come until seven. I was furious when she finally came to the door and said, where have you been? And she said, traffic. (laughs) And she said, well, now I can stay here as long as you like. And I said, that will not be necessary. Wow. And yeah, I mean, but because I had Eileen. And I had Sinai, mm. and I knew we would be okay. And they had, and Chris had come by earlier in the day, and he had given us some advice about, about the morphine. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, I was, yeah, I was not at always at my best um, during a moment. You think about this moment, right? When you, your, your parent is about to die, and you, and you think about how you want to be. Well, I was that way some of the time, but I was hacked off some of the time too. Lynn disappeared for a couple of hours. I was really peeved and I went to the door and I said, this is our last time with Adelaide. And Lynn handed me a bottle of scotch, (laughs) which is what she had gone out and done because she knew that that would be useful. Mm -hmm. What do you hope uh, people take from the book and, 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 you know, what have you taken from writing it? Yeah. Well, for me, writing helped make sense of things. I kept a journal for most of my adult life, but during that time in particular. And I would often write just to try to understand what was going on and what I was feeling. Um, and the writing of the book helped me kind of make sense of it. I, you know, in some ways, Scott, it's, a, it's, a, it's an occupational hazard. You know, as a journalist, you sort of think about things as a, as a story. Um, and I, I guess I wanted... I mean, my mom's a pretty great character, you know, and I wanted to tell this story. It's not a how-to book. It's a story that I hope resonates with others and that the, tr- the, the, the reality and truth of the caregiving experience, its hardships but also its joys come through. I wanted to try to tell that story um, the best I could, and I hope that's what people um, can gain from it. But I'm so glad that I I could, and I will always be so immensely grateful for both the the opportunity, for my family, for Lynn, for Eileen and Sinai, and all the others who were there and who I could not have ever survived (laughs) without. Yeah. How do we? How do people find the book? Who would like to buy it? Well, there's a bunch of them out there, (laughs) but for people online, yes, yes, we do have books. Um, here at the Commonwealth Club tonight, which I'm very grateful and grateful for the Commonwealth Club for hosting this event. Um, It's available um, anywhere you would like. It's available, of course, on Amazon and the usual online retailers, but it's also available in in bookstores um, around the Bay Area. If they don't have it in stock, they can get it within a a few days. Um, it's sometimes helpful to remember the subtitle, An Elderly Mother, An Aging Son, and Life's Final Journey, because there's also a, a book of poetry that was published about 50 years ago called Winter Stars, which I discovered. But you can't copyright a title, so I feel okay about that. But um, it really is available um, yeah. anywhere you'd, you'd like to find it. Well, I want to thank you, Dave, for sharing Adelaide with us and for coming here today. And um To those of you who tuned in, thanks for tuning in. This is uh, the end of our program here at the Commonwealth Club of California. And with that, we are adjourned. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.